Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 23. This is part 2. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. Welcome back, Pete. Uh, Welcome back you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I am am waiting, I have had anticipation of this podcast because of the promise of the Dr. Buck and the Dr. Buck Annihilation. And uh, so that's where we're starting. Uh, Dr. Buck's book, Cosmic Consciousness, is the book that, that I must say, Spensky has stolen numerous amounts of of text from throughout this book and not attributed it to the book. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the most infamous is the um, unfortunate turn of phrase when it came to describing native uh, Australian people, and uh, do you remember back when he um, it compared them to some Herbert Spencer? And anyway, we gave him a yeah. lot of curry over that. Well, we well certainly I did. mean, and, and I would say Svetsky really he shouldn't have grabbed he shouldn't have grabbed that quote. But let's let's be honest, and he's grabbed no. that quote and thrown it in and said nothing more about where it came from. But it did come from Doctor Buck's book Cosmic Consciousness. So it surprises me that now he's put swathes of just cut and paste uh, in in this last chapter, the last important chapter, I might add, and then annihilates him. So, you know, it's <laughs> like, I, wonder, I wonder if throughout the course of writing the book, Aspensky's had a falling out with Dr. Buck. It kind of looks like he may have. <laughs> well, I actually rather imagine that um, a post, I don't think that he, he was exchanging furious letters with Dr. Buck. I just think that as he's writing his his own book, Tertium Organum, he's realised that Dr. Buck isn't what he thought he was and that he has now surpassed Dr. Buck in his understanding uh, of what, he, what it is that he wants to convey. And he's now seeing Dr. Buck as something very lightweight and actually pathetic. Mm, yes, and positivistic in, in his alliance, well, his allegiance. Well, look, you know, we, what we won't do, because there's so much of Dr. Buck in this chapter, we, we won't try to go into any great detail. We'll just pull out various things. I mean, I the first thing I underlined was that um, when Dr. Buck starts going on about animals and he says, you know, they, they can't have self-awareness. Um, and I'd like to know how he thinks he knows that, because <laughs> we can't actually know whether a, an animal is self-aware in the way that Dr. Buck means it, because Dr. Buck doesn't tell us what he blooming means. If he doesn't define what he means by it, then don't tell me that an animal doesn't possess it. I, he starts talking about uh, a man can differentiate himself from a tree. And, you know, he knows that a tree is something separate and distinct. I've got to tell you, when a dog pisses on a tree, it doesn't think it's pissing on itself. <laughs> just, just, I'll just throw that one in there. Yeah, I, I, I find that ridiculous, personally, you know. Um, but remember in earlier chapters of Aspensky, 
he kind of pulled this kind of concept out into one of his early, early chapters and said basically the same thing, that animals have that next level down of, of consciousness and said because they don't have language, they're, you know, they're not yeah. able to... Hey, guess what? Guess what? Dr. Buck comes up and says that. That's the next thing I underline. Uspensky stole it from here. <laughs> I know. So this is this is the crazy thing. Uspensky's kind of used this material earlier on to, to back himself up and now he's, he's, he's about to, you know, give Dr. Buck the, the big ta-ta. <laughs> do, you ever, do, you ever, do you ever get the feeling that it took, it took Uspensky so long to write this book, he forgot what he'd put in the earlier chapters? <laughs> he probably did. I, I'm, I'm still sticking to the theory that, that he and Buck were, were contemporaries and they, they you know, he's had cigars and, and brandy together. Yep. And then one day... They had a falling out, and that was towards the end of the book. And so Spensky's got right in, right in there, <laughs> giving him. I like the idea that Spensky sits there and thinks, like, "Ha, right, book. I'll show you. I'm going to actually introduce you in my book, and the whole world will know what an idiot you are." And I'm thinking, well, Spensky, understand this, will you? The whole world doesn't read your book. There's about five of us who have read your book. <laughs> Oh, no, I think there's probably probably ten, but well, yeah, let's let's be fair. <laughs> but so anyway, so uh, Buck goes on, and his basic premise is that it'll just be a natural evolution that we've gone from this simple consciousness, which you know amoebas and things that aren't alive have, and then mm-hmm. self consciousness um, is sort of well above the animal kingdom. So the animal kingdom, simple consciousness, we're self-consciousness, we're aware of ourselves. And then this third one is cosmic consciousness, which he doesn't yeah. really define, I might add. However, he, his, his premise is that, you know, we're heading towards that. And uh, I I didn't understand why he put it in, but he seemed to think that the aeroplane was going to bring this revolution in. Yeah, no. I mean... what. What on earth would make someone think that the aeroplane was going to make humankind's consciousness evolve? Well, because because when people get to communicate, people who are separate now, they'll all fight. We'll all come to the idea that do you know what? We're all the same. We're all as one. <laughs> well, actually, what he ought to have realised that the first thing we ever did with aeroplanes is bomb the fuck out of each other in the First World War. <laughs> that was that was that. That was the first. That was the first use that we put practical use that we put to uh, aerial navigation, as Doctor Buck uh, calls it. And you know, yes. we, the future of our race is indescribably hopeful. I've put a question mark about that. What do you mean, indescribably <laughs> hopeful? Describe it. <laughs> you can describe it. It's not indescribable. Describe what what the hope is, you old dick. I'm I'm with Spensky on this. The guy's a complete tosser. He says. <laughs> there are at present moment impending over us three, count them, three revolutions. The least <laughs> I of, love to count. <laughs> and, uh, 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 the least of which would dwarf the ordinary historic up- upheaval called by that name into absolute significance. So these revolutions are going to be far more significant than the October Revolution of um, Russia in 1917. Um, interesting this. Let's hear what they are. Let's hear what Dr. Buck says they are. Firstly, the material 
economic and social revolution which will depend upon and result from the establishment of aerial navigation. He doesn't explain this. He goes on to number two. He goes on to number two. The economic and social revolution which will abolish individual ownership and rid the earth at once of two immense evils, riches and poverty. Um, newsflash, newsflash, it's not happening. Uh, and all, also, also, we're going the other way. We're, we're, we're finding that, that the super rich and the super elites are gathering ever more ownership into their own hands and creating ever more poverty at the other end of the scale. So, <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're still yep. waiting for that revolution to take place, Dr. Buck. Keep going. So his third one. Well, uh, he the, also says, and its ills will become subjects for historical novels. I'm thinking yeah. hysterical maybe, but not historical. <laughs> well, exactly. And then, and then the third one, the psychical revolution of, of which there is here question. In other words, this is what his book is about. Either the first two would, and will, radically change the conditions of and greatly uplift human life, but the third will do more for humanity than both the former, were their importance multiplied by hundreds or even thousands. He's a visionary, not. He's a prick. Before aerial navigation, natural, national boundaries, tariffs, and perhaps distinctions of language will fade out. Um, no, hasn't happened. The English-speaking world still visits the rest of the world and expects them to know English language and we shout at them in the hope that they will understand us. It hasn't broken down language. Distinctions of language haven't faded out because we haven't used aerial travel to find out how equal we are. We've used aerial travel to go and impose our will upon nations even quicker than we could in the previous century. Great cities will no longer have reason for being and will melt away. Tell that to Mexico City, Tokyo and so on, London, Los Angeles. Not happened. Never will. Sao Paulo in Brazil. No, these huge cities are just getting bigger. Uh, not, not melting but I like away. His, I, like, I like his concept here. And men will now dwell in, who dwell in cities will inhabit in summer the mountains and the seashores, building often in airy and beautiful places now almost or quite inaccessible, commanding the most extensive and magnificent views. Now, wouldn't we all love that? No, because this is what comes with it. Religion will govern every minute of every day of all life. Churches, priests, forms, creeds, prayers, all agents, all intermediaries between the individual man and God will be permanently replaced by direct, unmistakable intercourse. Well, actually, I'm thinking about it. Yes, I wouldn't mind spending every minute of every day adding intercourse <laughs> rather, rather than going to church. <laughs> well, look, you know, I, I, I'm hearing you, but I'm not sure that's what Buck meant. But maybe, yeah. <laughs> well... Sin will no longer exist, nor will salvation be desired. Men will not worry about death or, or a future. How about this, Dr. Buck? We're in 2020. You've had 100 years or so, and everybody's worried about everything. And people are so afraid of death that they're hiding behind the sofa when faced with a non-existent virus that they've been told to be afraid of. And even if the virus did exist, the results of death are non-existent, they're negligible. 
the survival rate is 99.97%. So no, people are fearing death now more than they ever, 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 ever did in human history. We've reached a point where people feel that they should be immortal and free from disease and that and that they've been told that science has the answer to everything. Well, carry on, Dr. Buck. Nice thoughts, but rubbish. Yep. Each soul will feel and know itself to be immortal. No, each each actual first consciousness thinks it's immortal. Every Every positivistic material aspect of humanity thinks it's now supposed to be immortal and hides behind the sofa, crapping itself. Rubbish. Anyway, Dr. Buck, you're an idiot. But then we do come to Adam and Eve. Do we? I just wanted to say, because I hadn't finished with the, the bit where I was heaving with laughter. You know, Go ahead. I, I, liked the, <laughs> I, I liked the building in, you know, in the winter, they'll probably, probably dwell in communities of moderate size. As herding together, as now, in great cities, so the isolation of the worker of the soil will become a thing of the past. Space will be practically annihilated. There will be no crowding together and no enforced solitude. You ready for this? This is the one. Before socialism, crushing toil, cruel anxiety, insulting and demoralising riches, poverty and its ills will become subjects for historical novels, which is what you said. Now, here's the thing. You're going to have to define socialism because in an idealistic socialism, that would have been the truth. But socialism, as it's actually been imposed upon various parts of the world, it hasn't turned out that way, has it? And it certainly didn't no. in Russia. It hasn't in the UK. It hasn't anywhere in Europe or anywhere else in the world where it's been imposed. It's been elitist and fascist to a degree that's almost breathtakingly incomprehensible. So... Dr. Buck, you are a naive, moronic dick. Yep, and I think he would be better suited to writing travel brochures. No, I think historical novels. <laughs> historical <laughs> novels, yes. Because he certainly has a talent for describing the, uh, well, the non-existent, <laughs> making it sound mm. good. Yeah. Religion will absolutely dominate the race. Yes, as, you, as you've already pointed out. I'm yeah, not thinking it? that's going to be very fun. No. Men will not worry about death or a future, about the kingdom of heaven, about what may come with or after the cessation of the life of the present body. Okay. Each, yeah, well, that's great. Each soul will feel and know itself to be immortal. I don't mind that bit because, you know, the fact of it is that a lot of people did feel that before, and, and people from cultures that are not of the West already understand this. They do. Mm. But these, these are the, the ones who are savages, obviously, um, cunning or otherwise. Yes, or maybe just simple women. Who knows? Well, you know. <laughs> and perhaps the four-year-old child, anyway. <laughs> Never gets old. Oh, I don't know. All right, well, then we go on to, he, he does bring in the um, the analogy of Adam and Eve, and he basically says, oh, well, that was a bit of an analogy, that story, because simple consciousness um, is like eating the apple. Self-consciousness um, is, I don't know, getting all bent out of shape about it. And then the saviour is cosmic Christ. consciousness. I, I, I was it, Christ, yes. I was a bit lost on his analogy, but there you go. No, you are. That's, uh -huh. Let's stop there because this is a very true one. Now we're coming back to mysticism. Everybody thinks that when you hear the word Christ, that, that, that we're actually talking about this physical person, whether he existed or not, which I can give you evidence why he, why he never did. But um, 
even if it is, they, you think that, that Jesus and Christ are the same things. You have to understand the meaning of this. Christ the Redeemer is the Tipareth, Tipareth inverted into Darth in the Kabbalistic tree of life. Christ the Redeemer. It's the Redeemer aspect. And this is a spiritual aspect of people who have awakening. It's got nothing to do with Christianity as a, an organized religion. Don't, don't mix the two. And Dr. Buck, that's what Dr. Means, Buck means there. And that's what Paul means, that Christ represents this, this redeeming aspect. But I'd rather go on to something quite amusing. Let's let's move on because Doctor Buck is quite amusing. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> he now he now wants to tell us about his own awakening experience. Oh yes, yes. And, let's get, and get so, on to that. And so and so he says, "I've got I've got to read this bit." Okay. At the age of thirty, he fell in with quote leaves of grass, and at once saw that it contained in greater measure than any book so far found what he had so long been looking for. He read the leaves e e eagerly, even passionately, but for several years derived little from them. At last light broke and there was revealed to him, as far as perhaps such things can be revealed, at least some of the meanings. Then occurred, are you ready? Then occurred ready. That, to wit, that to which the foregoing is the preface. It was in the early spring at the beginning of his 36th year. He and two friends had spent the evening reading Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats, Browning, and especially Whitman. Oh, for fuck's sake, what a fucking battle of laughs that night must have been. <laughs> how, 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 how often do you go and meet up with your mates? Yes, that would have been a barrel of laughs. Yes, I, I, I often have a night, an evening of Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats, Browning, but especially Whitman. Especially Whitman, especially. I know. Yes, and they often. parted at midnight... And he had a long drive in a hansom. He means a cab. It was an English city. So we're talking about the old horse-drawn hansom cab, which yes. is the forerunner of the Black Cab of London. So, so obviously, you know, you, you can imagine he was a he was a hansom cab ride away from his mates. He's gone round there and they sat there reading. I can't imagine several blokes sitting around reading this to each other. I don't even understand how Uspensky could bother to read this, let alone quote it. I suppose, I think he's put this quote in here. I think he's put this long passage from Dr. Buck so that everybody, like we are doing, is going to be laughing at Dr. Buck. Well, well, he does pull later on. He does refer to this. And the interesting thing is that Uspensky <laughs> says, well, you know, if... If you're going to get this moment of, of uh, expanded consciousness, you've got to put yourself into a space where you, you can receive it. So if you're sitting there, well, these are not his words, but if you're sitting there watching the telly on your, your, your nose and your phone or whatever, you're going to miss it. And he said, you know, perhaps if, if Buck had not had this wonderful evening of poetry and then been riding in his handsome cab on the way home. Perhaps if, if he'd been playing cards, if he'd been in a poker game, he wouldn't have had yeah. this enlightenment experience because he wouldn't have been in the space for it. Now, so I'm thinking, you know, that's why he's brought this in because he wants to, uh, he actually wants to make a proper point of it later on. Well, fair, fair dues, but I would say that sitting alone at home, opening a book of Keats or Shelley maybe, you know, and reading that for your own edification is fine. For me, it's the idea that f these blokes, you know, 
<laughs> These three men sat round in a room reading. Now, are, are they reading it quietly or are they reading it aloud to each other? Oh, it, it, I find it so, I find the idea so appalling. I can imagine you having a flash of inspiration reading the, reading some of these words on, on your own, but my God. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Anyway, each to their own. <laughs> well, well, it seemed to serve him well because he had this flash on the way yeah, home I, in the cab. I know. I have to say that, you know, he said that the, the secret of Whitman's transcendent greatness was revealed to him in this experience. Yeah, isn't that... But that, that in itself is interesting to say because poetry... Uh, yeah, is, I, I get that. Yeah, I, I, it's, I it's a form of yeah, trying to explain something that's not explainable. But yeah, it's um, but he did have personal intercourse and conversations with, with men. Um, I'm wondering yeah, if yeah, that's one of one, one, <laughs> one of them was one of them was Edward Carpenter. <laughs> the secret of Whitman's transcendent greatness was revealed to him. Personal intercourse and conversations with men, and that's Asterix, among whom was Edward Carpenter, who had similar experiences, assisted greatly in the broadening and clearing up of his speculations. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> anyway. Are you ready? Yes. No, no, no. Because after spending much time and labour in thinking, he came to the conclusion that there, are you ready? Underlined. There exists a family sprung from, living among, but scarcely forming a part of ordinary humanity whose members are spread abroad throughout the advanced races of mankind and throughout the last 40 centuries of the world's history. Um, I'm breathless. This is the bloodline that now rules the fucking world and is imposing its will upon all of us, locking us down, making people afraid of a non-existent virus, gathering all the assets of the world into itself. And he, he looks up to these fuckers. This is the bloodline from Suma and onwards. It is the bloodline. Put your fucking tinfoil so hat on. Take, he's a twat. That's what he's... He, the, the bloke is out of fucking order. I, I mean, this is ridiculous. The better known members of this group, who, if they were collected together, could be accommodated all at one time in a modern drawing room. This is the few. This is the few. Not the 1%. People are now being taken down a stupidly wrong path. It is far less than that that are running this world at the moment. But he's right. You could accommodate them easily in a small drawing room and yet he admires them <laughs> well, he's, he's saying they've created all the great modern religions beginning they with have and buddhism they have and speaking they have, have there's, there's nothing yeah there's nothing wrong with that he's dead right but we don't admire it for god's sake rise up against it He's not talking about the mystical aspect. Understand this. He is not. He's talking about the organised forms of it, which are enslaving. Right. It's absolutely appalling. He is spot He is spot on. Because he does say the great modern religions. Now, religions stem back a long way, don't they? So modern mm. would suggest... 2,000 years. 2,000 years and a, and a bit more. That's all. 
all of the great ones that, that they talk about, even, even the Eastern ones, they spring from there. Buddhism. The Buddhism hasn't been around for millions of years. Understand that. It hasn't. Neither has Taoism. Christianity, much younger. Islam, much younger. They're constructs. They are constructs. Yeah. Well, when I read that, I thought, oh, he skipped over to, you know, some of these people who have had mystical experiences and and thus by having those mystical experiences created a religion. But he's not from what you're saying here. He's saying, you're saying that these are the constructs of the religion we have. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Wow. That's blown me away. These men dominate the last 25 especially the last five centuries, as stars of the first magnitude dominate the midnight sky. Did you not read that line? I did. I've got it, I've got it highlighted. So who are, the people, who are the people who, in the last two and a half thousand years, and especially the last 500, that have dominated anything? So really, it's not the last 500. It, well, I suppose 500 from this point of view, but you can go back. So we're looking at things like... If we're in the 2000s, let's look at the Christianity point of view. Um, Augusta, um, Saint Augustine of Hippo, Thomas Aquinas. Um, let's go to somebody like Loyola. <laughs> so, you, do you know who Loyola is? Okay, no, I don't. The, the, this, this is the guy who founded the Jesuit order. Um, let's have a look at people like that. These people are not good people. God damn it, how can anybody even begin to think that? What's happened religiously in all of the, the major organized religions of the world in the 2500, last 2,500 years is absolute crushing enslavement. That's what they've done. So, Dr. Buck, if you were alive now and in this room with me, I'd punch you straight in the face. Yeah. I would do more, actually, because that would only be the beginning. You want, you want your head ripping off. That was very spiritual. That was deeply spiritual of me. But this is ridiculous. I'm glad his spokesman yeah, tears, tears him a new arsehole. Because the, <laughs> the, the bloke's a complete dick. Yeah, so, so he's, he's, he's really, he's, he is actually saying it's a family, hasn't he? Yeah, whose members have spread abroad throughout the advanced races of mankind. This, this, this is the bloodline. This is the bloodline. And so it's not a modern thing with tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy. This has been known about for a long time in very inner circles. And it has. Theosophy talks about it. Blavatsky talks about it all the time. So he seems to think, well, I'll quote what he says, their spiritual eyes have been opened and they have seen and have seen. No, no. There are founders of religions like that, that can have the experience. It's the people that take over. If, if big if, Jesus existed. Jesus did not actually establish Christianity as an organized religion throughout the world, blah, 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 blah. St. Paul did, the consummate politician, the evil, cunning organizer, and then other evil, cunning organizers made it even bigger, tighter, stronger, and started writing lists of rules had to be adhered to, which is why we have factionalism, which is why we have orthodoxy, which is the Eastern Christian religion that did not go with Catholicism at all and said, you expect us to bow down to what? So, but then the Greek and the Russian orthodoxy, which are pretty much the same thing, they then became very tight and organized themselves. The ones that lost out were the Coptics and the Gnostics. 
the ones that actually were following the teachings as opposed to the organization. And that's just Christianity. We could get to Islam and we can talk about how that's been organized and is miles away from the mystical beginnings of, of the outpouring of the religion, like all of them are. But then Buck goes on and, and he talks about generation to generation, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, under the law of natural selection. Well, even in his day, people were questioning that. And now, let's, let me tell you something. There is no proof of any such law, natural selection. It's another myth. That people, it's just a couple of paragraphs down. It's another myth, the law of natural selection. There is no such law. There is, there is an assumption on the part of some people say, well, it must have happened like this. Evolution, totally disproven. Whatever has happened, it's not that. Hmm. And then he says, the work of accumulation begins again on a higher plane. The sensory organs keep steadily at work, manufacturing precepts. The receptual centers keep steadily at work, manufacturing more and yet more recepts from the old and the new precepts. The capacity of central ganglia is constantly taxed to do necessary registration of precepts. The necessary elaboration of these into recepts, and then as the ganglia by use and selection are improved, they constantly manufacture from precepts and from the initial simple recepts more and more. In other words, he's trying to describe how natural selection and evolution works. It's horse shit. And you know what? Well, I think it would turn people off reading this, thinking that, that it has some point, and it has no point. Well, if they listen to this, they won't, they won't think it has any point, will they? Because... <laughs> Well, they, they might try and think, well, you know, why is Aspensky writing this? This must have a point until they get to the bit where he says this was ridiculous. Oh, only if you hero worship Aspensky. I don't hero worship Aspensky either, but I do think it was great that he put all this in so that he could say, this is the kind of horseshit that's out there. You've got to be really selective about what you think and believe. Don't take it for granted just because this guy is Dr. Buck that he's anything. You don't even need to necessarily believe he's had the mystical experience either, by the way. Yeah. He's got, you know, there's no, there's no proof of it. If he's met somebody that has had this experience, he might want it so badly that he tells himself and then starts believing his own lie. That, by the way, is a psychological phenomenon. People do believe their own lies if they, if it get, runs deep enough into them. So I, 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 don't, I don't trust a damn thing about this Dr. Buck. If anything, he might well be a plant for this bloodline that he, that he looks up to and reveres so greatly. Yes, well. Anyway, I, I, I haven't got great deals more, you know, to say about him. You know, the, he talks about language and sort of. I mean, there's something he does say. The philosophy of the birth of com cosmic consciousness is the... in in the individual is very similar to that of the birth of self-consciousness. The mind becomes overcrowded with concepts, and these are constantly becoming larger, more numerous, and more complex. Someday, this is the bit, someday, the conditions being all favorable, <laughs> he doesn't say what favorable means, the fusion, or what might be called the chemical union of several of them, and of certain moral elements takes place. The result is an intuition and the establishment of the intuitional mind, or, in other words, cosmic consciousness. Well, this is all described in a book um, called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. It's a Rosicrucian um, pamphlet 
that came out during that great Rosicrucian unfolding of the 16th, uh, the 17th century. Um, the Chemical Wedding of Christian Rose, Rosenkreutz describes all of this in alchemical allegory. It's very beautiful to read, even if you don't understand the, um, the technical aspects of what it's describing. If you read it again and again and again, some of it will imprint itself, at least some, maybe a lot. So he's, so, he's just sort of pulled it straight from that, do you think? Well, the idea of it being a chemical process, it's, it's seen, and, and what he's actually describing, this transformation. Alchemy is transformation, and even, tra even transubstantiation. And so for him to be describing that process and using the word chemical, um, I find it hard to believe that he's not referring to that. I might be wrong. It's possible. But I think that that's what he's referring to. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, he does talk about uh, music being potentially the uh, language of the higher consciousness, which is, has been a bit of a theme through Ospensky's book. He says perhaps music, which certainly has its roots in the moral nature, is, as at present existing, the beginning of a language which will tally and express emotions as words tally and express ideas. I mean, that's all he said. Oh, so what? So what? Okay. <laughs> so, so what? I, I don't care what he says now. I don't believe that mm. he's actually had an experience, to be honest with you. I just don't. Actually, I don't either. I don't either. I mean, if he's talking about bloodlines and things, you know, they, they don't marry, do they? Oh, and by the way, you know, this, this utopia that he talks about, you know, this, this where, where we all come together and, and great cities are done away with and, and ownership of, of property is gone, blah, blah, blah. Do you not know that that's happening right now? This, he is describing the, the agenda. Now, when you say, if people turn around and say, oh, they're not because the few, the 1% are gate-taking ownership of everything offers. Uh, no, they're not. What they're actually starting to do is put it into institutions that they have access to and we don't. They don't need to own it. If you, for example, create, take, take a huge swathe of land in a country, call it a national park, Okay, so it's owned by the state, technically. But we, but the state represents all of us, yeah? So we all yeah. now have ownership of that. Except that when they say, for your own good and for the ecology of the land, we're going to stop you from going on to it. But they'll have access to it. The elite will have access to it. You'll see them. Oh, well, we, you will. I mean, it happens now. Um, for example, in this country, World Heritage Site, Stonehenge, when I was younger, you could just walk into that, you could touch the stones, you could do anything. Now, you can't. But, but people can. Certain people who are at the top of certain trees have access to it and on certain days. And this is going to happen. They will have access to it. They don't need to own it. Why do you need to own something? If you have exclusive use of it, you don't need to own it. People don't understand... They think that the Queen owns Buckingham Palace. It doesn't. It's owned by the Crown, which in effect means that she owns it. But she has exclusive ownership of it. Right near to me, there is a stately home. It's owned by um, the Litchfields, which, you know, the late, um, the last late uh, Lord Litchfield, Patrick um, Litchfield, is a cousin of the Queen. Now, that house is now been taken over by the National Trust. The UK National Trust. They pay for its upkeep and everything else, but he has the, or him and his family, have the exclusive right to live in it. So we're paying for it, they live in it. 
We can't go and live in it, so how do we own it? This is how it works. They take ownership that way. They say it's for the common good and it's for the good of the land, it's for the ecology of the planet, blah, blah, blah. We're, we're conserving nature, but they'll go hunting on it. They'll go and do what they want on it. They will have access to it. We won't. Um, tell, tell me again why they need to have ownership. Yes, ending ownership is one of the great goals. Let me explain even further. In this country, we've been told that the Englishman's home is his castle, blah, blah. Under Thatcherism, we were all all encouraged to own our own homes we have the the highest level of home ownership anywhere in europe and and much higher than america possibly not higher than australia we're probably on the same levels with there maybe with new zealand although i don't know we're probably higher than that too it's been made a big thing OK, and what you're doing is you're leaving a legacy for your children. You know, your house increases in value right now. They're taking that. They're taking the ownership of that property away from everybody and they do it very easily. They make they make it so that children we've, we've created a society where children do not want their aged parents and grandparents to live with them, to be looked after. So we have to put them in care homes. The cost of a care home is massive. So what you have to do is you have to set your house against that. You have to set the family home, which means that you as a child with your parents in a care home will not get to inherit that house. It will all go towards paying the care home um, for looking after your aged parents and grandparents. Boom, that's it. So when they sell that, what does it go to? It will end up as the property of huge corporations or banks. Banks and, corp and these, huge corp these huge hedge fund corporations, etc., etc., are the province they are the the mechanism they are the engines of the elite so they're taking ownership of even the small scale thing your back garden will no longer be your land it won't be your family's anyway because yeah. they'll take it off you and look yeah the other way they can do it is death duties well we had that in the early 1960s here and we ended up and this is what happened with stately homes being put in the hands of the national trust whereby we, the ordinary working people, pay tax that goes to the National Trust, that pays for the upkeep of these houses. Who lives in these houses? Oh, that's right, the aristocrats that were previously living in them. Only they no longer have to pay for the upkeep. <laughs> oh, tell me how that one works out. That's been happening in this country since the 1960s. I'm going to suggest that it's probably been going on in different forms longer. But that was the big one. That was death duties. Death duties applying to ordinary people... I can I can only speak for the UK. Um, that changed when they wanted to when they wanted to push home ownership. Why would you want to push home ownership? Okay, so you could take these little plots of land individually off everybody. In the meantime, who's paying for these little plots of lands? We are. We buy the house. We pay. We pay with actual real assets. We pay with our time and our work to earn fake money to pay for these homes that we own and cherish that we're going to pass on to our children so that they will have an easier start except that right now only we're only like 40 years after that that really did begin to be pushed in this country in the 1980s under margaret thatcher 40 years they let that last two generations at most and now they're ripping it all out of our hands now that we've slaved and worked ourselves to death to, to own these properties they're making sure that they take every little bit bit of it off us. There you go. It's happening all the time. So Buck has always been pushing this agenda. 
you know, ownership of property will will be gone. Well, it will be gone. No, who the elite don't need to own it so long as they control it and have exclusive access to it. Why do you need ownership? Ownership is just a word. And this uh, this concept that he talks about, oh, you know, you have the summer houses with the beautiful, magnificent views. How many people? could have a magnificent view. Seriously, there aren't that many magnificent views available to all of us. Well, just a few, but the Russian elite always, even under socialism, I call it communism, I hate the word socialism because it can mean something else, but under that, they had dachas in the country just to the west of Moscow, and a lot of them had holiday homes on the Black Sea. It's places like Sochi and so on. They had skiing resorts down there just outside Sochi as well. So, so yes, the elite had them, but the ordinary Russians who were slaving to death didn't have access to them, did they? Well, what about this? Space will be practically annihilated. There will be no crowding together and no enforced solitude. In other words, well, they're going to bundle you in wherever they want you. Yeah, which which is these which is these factory cities where you're going to be living in virtually, and it's happening now. We're seeing um, apartment blocks being built in big cities in this country where the the square footage of floor space is pathetic. My therapy centre is bigger than some um, bijou apartments in city centres. You wouldn't want to live in here. I mean, if I was living in here alone, possibly, um, me, wife, and a kid. In here? Really? Keep going. Two kids? Impossible. Well, possible because there are parts in the world where that happens, but um, not nice. So, so it, it, yeah, you're right. I mean, when you read this, you think, hang on a second. Uh, this is either he's, he's delusional or... I don't... I don't think he he's, is. He's pushing an agenda. Well, I'm, I'm suggesting as you I are. I think the latter. The second. The latter. Yeah. yeah me too. Me too. Which is why I'm angry uh, about this completely, you know. And I'm glad that Uspensky destroys him, mm. which he does. Yeah, beautifully. Which he does. I mean, in fact, Uspensky is actually quite kind on Doctor Buck in a way, in as much as he doesn't spend as much time destroying him as we have. Just, um, but he does destroy it. I mean, you know, probably there was a period when speech was not a gift of all men, just as are not now art artistic talents. The musical sense, the sense of colour and form. Gradually it became possible for all, and then inevitable and necessary, if some physical defect did not prevent its manifestation. And I've put next to that, prove it. That sounds like a load of shit to me. Yeah. He's, this is when he's on about talents, and he's still on about this evolution, that there are this certain group of gifted people in, in a bloodline, where all of these talents start to emerge, and the rest of, them, the rest of us are just savages, not even cunning. Not even that. Yeah, exactly right. Um, well, I think in in a nutshell, Buck is basically saying, just relax, don't do anything. It'll all happen. Nothing to see here. Uh, but you're on your way to being enlightened. So just do do as you're told. Uh, I like what what Uspensky uh, says. Comments on the quotations from Doctor Buck's book. Yes, here so in other words, better up. I've put yeah, and he, has, <laughs> he says, although I'm quoting Doctor Buck's opinion regarding three coming revolutions, let me note that I do not at all share his optimism regarding social life, which, as follows from what he says, 
can and must change by reason of material causes, the conquest of the air, the social revolution. The only possible ground for favourable changes in the outer life, provided such changes are generally possible, can only be changes in the inner life, i.e. those changes which Dr. Buck calls the psychical revolution. This is the only thing that can create a better future for men. In other words, Dr. Buck, what horseshit? You've just wasted everybody's time. Well, Pete, you know, I think that's a great place to leave it before we start embark on the uh, Aspensky's annihilation of Buck. I think Buck's had enough today from our annihilation of him. So I'm going to leave it there and uh, I look forward to chatting with you in the next part where we talk, well, where Aspensky basically, as you said before, takes the cricket back to the bollocks of uh, Dr. Buck. He certainly does. He, he really does emasculate Dr. Buck in that way. It must be very painful. Um, I'm looking forward to it too. I'll see you next time. Yep. See you then, and thanks everyone for listening.